This is Dr. Mario Sacasa, and welcome to another episode of the Always Hope Podcast, a production of the Willwoods Faith and Marriage Ministry. Men and women, ugh, is there anything that causes more heartache than this dynamic? But try as we may, we are stuck together and have to figure it out. In this episode, we focus on the male side of the equation and try to determine what it means to be a man in a modern, pluralistic, and gender-neutral culture. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Miller, Professor of Moral Theology at Notre Dame Seminary. Dr. Miller and I had the pleasure of working together during my four years on faculty at Notre Dame Seminary. She is an expert on the study of human sexuality, rooting her thought in the minds of the last three popes, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis. She is a renowned lecturer on these topics and brings a much needed feminine voice to understanding masculinity. In this episode, we discuss the practical and theological importance of understanding the male-female relationship. We talk about modern gender theory, the innate differences of men and women, the gifts and curses of men and women, and why we should look to Jesus as the model of masculinity, not St. Joseph. No offense to all you St. Joseph lovers of the world. We cover a lot of ground this episode, and you don't want to miss it. So thanks for allowing us to be part of your day. And don't forget to head over to faithandmarriage.org for more great content. Now, let's jump into the show. So I am so grateful that you can be here. Uh, I know that you and I have had many conversations related to masculinity, related to femininity, related to authentic relationships between men and women. And so I've been very grateful for each of those. And I really want to take this opportunity now to encourage our listeners to be able to come in and be invited into this conversation that we've had at coffee shops and our offices, rants here and there. And so now we're actually hitting record and going to have an opportunity to, to, to get an audience in on, on the conversation with us. So thank you so much for being here. I know you're a busy woman and very grateful for your time. No, thank you, Dr. Mary Sakasa. It, it really has been a blessing to me, all these conversations as well. And like you said, the opportunity to expand that conversation mm-hmm. and to invite other people in, especially mm-hmm. men and women, to have these conversations together. Right. Right. I think it's a real blessing for all of us. So thank you. Amen. Amen. So today, I think where I want to start is just kind of examining masculinity in our culture today, and particularly in our Christian Catholic sense. I mean, we could talk about everything, wherever the conversation goes, whether it's culturally within America, whatever. But I've done men's retreats. I've I've read a lot on this. I've done, I mean, all sorts of things related to men's ministry over the years. And I have found kind of, at least in my own experience, somewhat of a limitation with some of these groups or books or different things that are out there, which are great. They're doing a lot of good work. I understand that. But I, what I have found is that sometimes they tend to define, how to say this, I guess, masculinity, almost as if it's like a, in a vacuum where it's like its own independent ideal. And so what is used in are analogies or qualities that men typically are attracted to or or that typically are, are masculine things so uh, sports or military or outdoor stuff like and those are all great you know and it's great bonding experiences for men to that but inevitably inevitably whenever i've done these things i always find the guys are like i you know some guys are like yeah i'm all in i get the sports analogy i get the military analogy i get the the outdoor stuff but then some guys are like yeah i really don't i really don't connect with that i don't that isn't how i express my masculine identity or or what it means to live like as a man and and sometimes they end up feeling worse because the expectation is well you have to do these things to be a man um, and so as i've reflected on this i think that a better way to maybe start the conversation related to masculinity is in relationship 
right? That masculinity does not exist as a vacuum, does not exist as something, an independent idea, but rather it's only or more fully understood in the context of relationship, relationship with one another, but in a particular relationship with femininity. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? What do you, what, what do you think? I, I, um, I very much agree with you. Um, I think we see this scripturally, we see this experientially, we see this um, in the history of the, of the church as well, right? Um, so, for example, if we were to go back to Genesis, we would see that man, the word Adam, that we always think of this guy kind of running around by himself, having conversations with God, and then God randomly creates a woman from his his rib, that rea in reality, the word that's used for man up to the creation of woman is a general term for humanity. Adam just means humanity. So, in reality, the first time we hear male is the first time that we hear female. We hear those two for the first time together, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's only in front of one another that they really come to know each other. And I think that perhaps if we begin to speak about what it means to be masculine or what it means to have that particular gender in terms of relationship, that also can help us avoid some of the stereotypes, right? Or some of the extremes um, that come in understanding masculinity. For example, we can take um, the very well-known story of St. Thomas Aquinas. His brothers, when they heard that he wanted to become now, a- Now, this may be a very well-known story to you and other, <laughs> and other moral theologians, but uh, to us yeah. lay people- I'll, I'll tell it, I'll tell it. Don't <laughs> Please worry, tell the full story, okay. give us all the context for it. So, um, so his family, his brothers weren't very excited about him becoming a priest, right? Okay. And so they went ahead, instead of letting him join peacefully the Dominican order, mm -hmm. they went ahead and they locked him in a tower. And while he was asleep, they introduced, let's call her a woman of the night into his room, right? Oh, okay. And when he woke up, he saw her mm -hmm. and he ran her out of the room with a flaming hot poker, right? Flannery O'Connor, um, the Catholic Southern writer, commenting on this, she says, um, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas did it one way. He looked her in the eyes and looking in his eyes, she knew who she was. Mm -hmm. And he knew himself mm -hmm. that the only way to deal with this kind of temptation was to run her out of the room with a hot poker. Wow. She said St. John of the Cross would have sat down on the bed with her right. and would have spoken to her about the love of God and the fact that she was his beloved daughter. Yeah. And I think what Flannery O'Connor is really trying to bring out here, though, is that both of these men amazing masculine saints lived their masculinity out differently and that we see this most clearly in relationship with another most clearly in relationship with woman okay so we can go in different directions here this is a great a great thing to bring up just with regards to temptation i guess um in terms of how you respond to to situation or a guy responds when he is tempted um i'm going to put that aside just for a second just so we can kind of stay broad at least for the moment in regards then to defining masculinity in relationship, I mean, what what more can be said? I mean, what where where do the two complement one another, particularly masculinity and femininity? Why did particularly JP two write so much about this? I know there's a lot of a lot of popular authors out there related to theology of the body, mm -hmm. and that seems to be a major catechesis. I know he's written about it in other places as well, but that the central catechesis is getting this relationship right. Why why is that so important? To getting the relationship between male and female, right? Yeah. So even like first, let's start theologically. Like, why why is that an important theological premise? And then practically speaking, why is that just important for guys and girls to 
get along. Okay. <laughs> um, so theologically speaking, so if you don't mind, I'll go back to Genesis again, like we did earlier. Right. So what do we see? We see God creates, there's this Adam, there's this humanity um, in the garden. And we're kind of like, if we watch the text carefully, there are all these clues and surprises that the sacred author throws at us. For example, we hear that God creates Adam, he creates humanity because there's no one to till and to care for the earth. Mm-hmm. And yet six verses later, all this in chapter two, we then hear that God makes to grow up out of the earth, every tree and every shrub and every bush, right? So it's, wow. you know, you're kind of like, I thought man was supposed to be doing that. Why does the text say God is doing that? Or for example, God gives this command to man, right? What's the one direction that God gives to man? This is a trick question for you, Dr. Sakasa. Oh, geez, I'm on the spot now. So <laughs> what is the one command that he gives to man? Yes. To name the animals? No. To man particularly? To be fruitful and multiple? To... uh, He brings the animals to him, but there's no command given. There's no command given Mm -hmm. to name the animal. Um, As to trees. uh, To trim the bushes? (laughs) Oh, to not eat of the tree of good and evil? Okay. Is that it? Yes. (laughs) Except that what happens is we all immediately think of it this way but when we go back to the text the text actually says you can eat of all of the trees Mm. of the garden Mm -hmm. right you just can't eat of this one tree so in reality what we see here is that we tend to think of god as kind of imposing things on man what he's trying to do is expose man to this incredible freedom that he has Mm. right and this is why we see that although man is the one created for the bushes and the trees he works together with god for these to come up out of the earth right any Mm. of us who have ever tried to have a garden know you can plant a seed and you can wish and you can pray (laughs) but after you plant the seed it's not really in your hands (laughs) i have the opposite of a green thumb i've killed a cactus that's a true confession. Okay. <laughs> so garden analogies only go so far for, for me, but, yeah, but exactly. I'm with you. But well, I get I it mean, in concept. I get it this in concept. This is it, right? Because the reality is you could do everything right, right? Because mm-hmm. I kind of struggle the same thing. Mm-hmm. I have one plant that survived me. Um, but it's really like you're working together with God. And I, I think the same thing here, right? God says, eat out of all the trees, just not this one. So... Um, we get this immense freedom in which we are really called to realize ourselves. But despite that man has this immense freedom, what happens? He names the animals Mm -hmm. and then he... Woman comes? (laughs) No, no, between woman and the animals, what happens? He goes to sleep. He goes to sleep, Mm -hmm. right? And some of the commentators have said he was basically bored to death. Mm. You know, he falls into this deep sleep, right? Because there is no one in front of him to help realize himself, right? So he's been working. He's been imaging God and his care and his provision in the world. But it's until there is another in front of him for whom he can provide that man is only at that point does man become capable of knowing who he is. He has to see in the other before him. And we say that, we say that for male and female, right? It's only in looking at each other that they have an idea. Okay, so would you repeat that point because I think that's important. I think it's it's only in man and woman looking at each other, right, and in their relationship that they confirm and encourage one another in their masculinity, in their femininity, in being man, 
right? And of being woman. And we see that even in, in kind of like that first encounter between Adam and Eve, right? So if, if I'm hearing this right, just to make mm-hmm. sure that Please we're, we're understanding this, man worked before, man had commands by God. He did what God asked him to do, yeah. but it still wasn't enough. He had this amazing relationship with God. He had hippopotami and he had giraffes. He had all of the fun things that you could want in the world. But because there was no one like him, right? And that term that when God says, I will make a helper similar to him, Ezra Konegdo, mm-hmm. is essential because it's only ever afterwards used in the Old Testament to refer to God who comes in times of trouble to save to save his people, right? Man needs another in order for his salvation. Wow. That's beautiful. Amazing. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's beautiful. So the it's woman amazing. is that for the man. The woman is that for the man and the man vice versa for the woman. Because remember, until the creation of female, we're just talking about humanity in general. Mm-hmm. So everything we say up to that point reply refers, right, applies to both man and to woman. Beautiful. And so the church communicates, right, that these truths are are innate. They are um, the stories as old as time in every culture, uh, in every age. This we have to get right, that that this relationship between men and women always um, is, is of significance. Now, contrast that for me to, I guess, what we're kind of hearing here in our modern ear, something called gender theory, modern mm-hmm. gender theory, which does the exact opposite. From my understanding, I've, I've been in counseling programs and in other secular programs where the, the, with the postmodern lens that the idea basically is that gender is just a social construct. It's really actually created from the patriarchy as a, as a way to control women specifically. Mm-hmm. And so we need to break free of these gender norms and all these things that have been taught for millennia really is just bunk because it's been this massive system of power uh, to to control women particularly. So we need to be liberated of these so that we can uh, actualize, I guess self-actualize what woman is supposed to be and what man is supposed to be. How do those two, yeah, just tell me more about gender theory, I guess is what I'm asking, right? <laughs> how do we pull this out, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, what, what, like, how does that contrast to what the church communicates with regards to gender identity? Okay. Um, so what, you know, I think it helps to kind of have an understanding at the beginning of gender theory. Mm-hmm. So as you pointed out, this really is considered the fourth wave of feminism in the United States. And we could say the mother of gender theory is a Judith Butler, who um, in 1991 wrote her book, Gender Trouble. And in this book, she really relies very heavily on and tries to pull out the implications of Simone de Beauvoir's assertion that a woman, one does, is not born a woman, one becomes a woman, right? Mm-hmm. And so her argument is that gender um, or even sex, right? Which she says, sex is merely a reflection of gender, isn't a stable identity, but it's something that we acquire through repetitive stylized acts. So she would say that gender is performative. And because my gender is performative, um, what this means is I acquired it through time, usually because certain gender norms are being imposed on me and I'm being either rewarded or punished in as much as I conform to or I don't buy those norms, right? So let's say I'm a little girl and um, I'm having a conversation with my mom and I'm excited about a book I read and I'm this little girl who likes to think and to analyze things. Right. And my mom said, oh honey, I don't, I don't wanna hear about that. Um, and then she pulls my, 
my little sister to her and she says, oh, you know, tell me about your day at school. Tell me about the boys that you met. Tell Mm -hmm. me about I'm being punished, right, for not living up to a gender norm, or at least this would be the idea, because it's boys who are supposed to read books and analyze and think, and it's little girls who are instead are supposed to give hugs and little girls who are supposed to be excited about boys, right? Right. And so, in a certain sense, we could say that there are some very valid questions that gender theory asks us, and I I think you started with some of that, right? Uh, What does it mean to be a man? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a woman? Mm-hmm. Are these things that are stable, that are imposed upon us? Or in some way, do we have a hand in creating the way that we live out our particular gender? And I think in as much as gender theory asks some of these questions, it's really a point of dialogue. Um, because we bring the good news that we are made in the image of God right. as male and female. Right. You're listening to Always Hope with Dr. Mario, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. Today I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Miller, professor of moral theology at Notre Dame Seminary and renowned speaker on the topic of human sexuality. I pray that you have been enjoying the conversation thus far. And don't forget to head over to faithinmarriage.org for more great content and to see how we can help you in your marriage, in your faith life, and in your ministry. Let's get back to the show. Where do you think the, I mean, even as you speak about that, there's there's an element of of gender theory that is good, if we yes. can say that, that there's a, the questions that it asks are are right. Um, coincidentally, last night we started watching The Fiddler on the Roof, and this is actually, I hate to admit, this is my first time watching it, so I really <laughs> have no idea the story at all. And we got 45 minutes into the movie, we had to stop it because it was getting kind of late. But as I was watching the first 45 minutes of the movie, I was like, man, like, Feminism has there, there's there these these girls right basic premise that these girls are poor and they have to be subjected to the matchmaker coming to make a decision for them and the whole song you know matchmaker matchmaker mm-hmm. make me a match even in the end they they discuss just like like you're not going to marry the man of your dreams right you're probably going to marry some drunk who's who's not going to take care of you only beat you at night only if you're sober you know is the joke that they kind of say tongue in cheek if you're right? lucky if you're lucky <laughs> if you're lucky right. And you sit there and you sit back and you say, there's something wrong with that, right? There's mm-hmm. culturally speaking, that's not, that's not good for women to be, to have to be subjected to that. So I can understand, I guess, where, where feminism has its place. And I think this is important because so often in families today, these things end up getting drawn down like conservative or liberal lines mm-hmm. where uh, the Democrats, and I hate to say politically, but just let's speak it to liberal versus conservatives. Mm-hmm. And so families end up having these tensions and these um, arguments with one another because they can't even come to any points of agreement or any points of, not even necessarily agreement, but understanding as to yes. why one thinks one and why one thinks the other. So I can, what do you think about that? I think you're right. Um, it's it's kind of important to look back at the history of feminism to have a, an idea of that. In fact, first wave feminism, which came out at the end of the 19th century, we could say even 
it began towards the end of the 18th century, um, beginning of the 19th century, really responded to a lot of these concerns. What happens when a woman is in an abusive relationship? Um, what happens when her husband has all the power over the money mm-hmm. and is capable even of apprenticing her daughter to a brothel um, and she has nothing to say? And in fact, a lot of that, that movement that came out um, from, we would say, the those first feminists really dealt with some of the these issues over time and i think what has become really the difficulty for people in, in using the word feminism or talking about feminism and i see this in my own family right right because i'll they'll say oh all feminists are bad you know and and i'll say well i consider myself a feminist right saint john paul ii considered himself a feminist pope is when we confuse um feminism with either an idea that men and women are exactly the same and there's no difference mm-hmm. or men and women are completely different and there's a superiority and an inferiority instead of looking back really to the history of the tradition of the church and the gospel saint hildegard of bingen in the 12th century who's the first really to have this idea of complementarity and to say wait men and women can both be created in the image of god and because of God's infinite nature, they can reflect different aspects equally of God himself. Correct, correct. So we can say then that there, the, the argument, right, that the men and women, there was this, this differential uh, hierarchy, one above the other, mm-hmm. that we needed to create a new way of thinking where the two would be equal. But maybe where we've gone too far in our culture is that now the distinction has been lost. Exactly. Right? And so but we can still say that there is a distinction. There is something innate and unique about being a man, something unique and innate about being a woman, but that there isn't, we don't have to look at this as a one up, one down. We can just acknowledge that the differences are there and that there's an equality that exists within the difference, a complementarity. Exactly. I'd say saying that there are differences, which often most of us experientially recognize, right? So we make comments about things that men always do, right? Oh, men never communicate their feelings or women always talk too much. Um, sorry that I, did, I shouldn't have gone on the negative, but um, that we, we both tend to be true. I'm a marriage counselor, so I see it all. It's, it's OK. Um, but we and, and at the same time, we're all all capable of recognizing that these may be general traits of being a man or being a woman, mm-hmm. but they're not set in stone. So we can say that there's something essential to being male, something essential to being female. And yet these are incarnated different in each man and each woman because of the unique gifts that they've been given, because of the culture that they live in, because of the grace that they ex- they choose to accept, and because of the relationships into which they enter. Okay, so let's go right there. So if we can say that there is something unique and innate with each one, what specifically then, if we hone in on men, without getting into stereotypes, without getting necessarily into, I mean, I know certain generalizations are there, but what qualities then, as the man looks at the woman, and he sees right something in him that needs to be drawn out something the good that he can offer to her what what are those qualities what do you think are the things that that the men masculinity tend to offer okay so We'll go back again to Genesis. Let's just keep going back to fun. Genesis. That's, that's <laughs> the place to begin. Exactly. We could spend hours talking about the first three <laughs> chapters of Genesis. It's, it's great. Four years of centuries. Yes. Yes. Um, so I've been trying to to allow my seminarians to teach me more in class lately, 
And so this past year, I thought, well, the easiest way to do that really to make theology a collaborative discipline, as Pope Benedict XVI encouraged us to do, is to let the richness of the Word of God speak to us. And so we began one class just by reading Genesis 2. And I said, okay, what strikes you? What do you know? What is irregular in the text? Often we're so accustomed to the words, we don't kind of listen for the irregularities that the sacred author is trying to, to call our attention to. And there was one guy in the front who was immediately on fire, right? So I called on him and I said, what do you see? And he was like, the woman doesn't say anything. The man is so excited. He was so excited. And the woman doesn't say anything, right? And I thought, I was like, wow. Like, that is true. I'm like, when in the history of mankind has it ever occurred that the man speaks and the woman doesn't say a word? Right, right. <laughs> so I really was like bothered, troubled, like in a good sense of the word. You know, like Mary heard all these things and she was troubled by them. And so I'd ask her, well, what do you think this means? What do you think this means? What do you think this means? Um, and, and, I think it was only going back to kind of the analogy of the first date that I could really understand what was happening. Because what we're seeing here is the first date. Like the first man and the first woman having that meeting, that encounter, kind of like having this moment in which they meet. Right. Um, and first dates have a really typical pattern. Are you saying there's a Starbucks in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> <laughs> There is a Starbucks in the, in the car. Or your local coffee shop if you prefer. I'm an Olivine girl. Yeah, buy local. But. Buy local. We support local. Um, yes. Yeah, so, like, you know, first date, match.com, whatever. God hooks them up. So they were really lucky there. The hookup came later. <laughs> that's, that's the next, that's the next that's verse. That's verse 21. Um, yeah. So, so they kind of, they see each other. So what happens? Typical first date, right? Um. Usually what happens is the man more or less eloquently has met this young woman and, you know, he kind of would like to get to know her better. And he more or less eloquently will ask her out for dinner or for a coffee. Sometimes it's really smooth. Sometimes he gets the words kind of confused in the yeah, sentence, yeah. you know, and she smiles. Oh, yes, I'd be happy to go. And then, you know, let's say a week later, usually he picks the day, he picks the time. He picks the place, so, okay, reservation, seven o'clock, you know, he's decided this is a girl who get, who should be treated well, right? So he's gonna take her to some fancy schmancy restaurant. So they go to the restaurant, usually he talks a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And she smiles and she listens, she laughs, she laughs a lot. And, um, and then at the end of the date, especially if he's hoping that he'll get a second one, he's gonna pay and he'll leave a nice little tip on the tray, right? Mm -hmm. the, the date is more or less over. Okay, first date, right? Um, and it really looks like he did all the work, but we all know that's only part of the story because what happens is the moment he walks away, she is on a phone. She is. And she has called her mom. She has. <laughs> and her sister. She has. <laughs> and her best friend. Right. <laughs> and she spends an entire week trying to figure out what to wear, what not to wear, because obviously the shoes don't go with that shirt, that doesn't go with that dress. And so she has to go out and buy an entire new outfit, usually starting with the shoes, right? Then which earrings is she gonna wear? Not too big, because you don't wanna look like that kind of woman, not too small, you don't wanna look too conservative, you wanna look fun, right? Then they go out, she's gonna be 15 minutes late because on a regular day, it takes two hours to get ready for the date four. Um, 
And then she's going to work really hard to encourage him to speak, right? Like she wants him to open up as a man. Um, and she smiles and she listens and she laughs the jokes, even if they're not that funny, right? So what's going on here? St. John Paul II says that a woman has to suffer or to receive love in order to love. And a man has to love in order to suffer or receive love. And I'm going to repeat that. Yeah, please do. Um, a woman has to suffer love in order to love. And a man has to suffer, has to love in order to suffer or to receive love. So just in the example that you just provided about the first date, the suffering that the woman, if we quote unquote, mm-hmm. my listeners can't see I'm doing quotes with my fingers <laughs> right now. But if, if the suffering then is the two weeks of deliberation prior to, right? The, what shoes am I going to wear? What perfume am I going to wear? How am I going to match? The, the, the constant thinking about how to come across, right, in mm-hmm. a certain way. That's the suffering that you're speaking about. Yes. And even within the date itself, right? Because so I hear he's nervous in his voice and he doesn't get the the words right. So I encourage him and I say, oh, yes, you mean this, right? I think that happened to me too once. Oh, yes. So then that gives him he feels encouraged. He can elaborate. Right. Um, Even in that, we would say in that receiving love. Right. And um, this is what we see on the first date. Mm -hmm. Right. We see Adam loving Eve. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? And Eve receives it. Mm. She receives it. So I think if we're going to talk about something perhaps as particular to man that we could see there, we would say that man first and foremost is called to provide for woman Mm -hmm. and not just in a way which is physical right because adam only has one thing to give to her Mm -hmm. and he gives that to her right it's a name and with a name and identity right he's called to provide for the other physically spiritually emotionally and intellectually Mm -hmm. and this is what he does he proposes to her and he lets her know that she is the bride he reveals her identity this is Dr. Mario, and we're taking one more break from my conversation with uh, Dr. Jennifer Miller. Just want to remind you again that Always Hope is a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. Faith and Marriage is a ministry within the Willwood's community, and we are dedicated to helping you on your marriage and in your faith journey. Again, check us out at uh, faithandmarriage.org, where you can see more great content and other ways that we can be of service to you and your relationship. Let's get back to the episode. So providing is one of the key aspects here of masculinity. I'd say yes. And most specifically, providing for the other. Providing for the other. Because it gets very easy, mm-hmm. right? Especially most men are very goal-oriented. I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide. But if you don't keep in mind who you're providing for, that communion, that relationship with the other gets lost. Mm-hmm. How many times do we see couples who have been supposedly happily married for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, the children go off to college, 
and the wife walks out and the husband has provided the big house, the big cars, the everything that looked physically, mm-hmm. right? But he hasn't provided for her what she truly needed, which was her identity as a bride. Mm-hmm. So how does a man provide that? Well, I think it starts and stops, right? Mm -hmm. Because as we said, being male or being female, the way that's lived out in masculinity or femininity is particular to each person. Correct. And so he's going to learn in the relationship with his wife, right? With his girlfriend, with the woman before her, how best to reveal to her that she is the bride. So for him to be able to provide for her, we're not just speaking about money, Again, these things do offer security. I get it, right? Yes. When when, it, when you're able to have enough finances to pay your bills, that certainly is there. When you're smart enough to be able to have conversations, that's great. But beyond just the mere physical, the material, there's something deeper that's there. But I would imagine that for a guy to be able to provide, particularly, not just generally, but providing particularly to the needs of the woman that's in front of him, he needs to be able to listen to what her needs are. Exactly. Correct? So to be able to actually listen to what she needs provide vision for, if I said that right. No, I I think you said that correctly. And, you know, to see that exemplar of humanity and even masculinity, we would see this in Jesus Christ um, in the way that he provided, not just physically in terms of the miracles where he multiplies the bread or he heals someone, but even in as much as he's willing to enter into conversation with women, right, which would have been in some senses seemed unusual for a man. His Mm -hmm. disciples marveled that he was speaking with the woman at the well, Um, but even to allow them to be his disciples as happened in the scenario with Mary and Martha, right? He was willing to cross those cultural boundaries to get to know this woman and to understand how she could best be provided for. Yeah, so Jesus in his provision isn't just this, I mean, it is right that he comes and saves for all of us, but every single one of us has to be able to come to the point where we can accept, we can accept that within our own hearts and that, but the woman, I guess what I'm saying here is that the woman, the challenge for her is to understand what her needs are also. Is that fair to say? I would say that. How would you articulate that? Because for her to be able to communicate what she actually needs, that requires a certain degree of self-reflection to be able to understand what it is that she really needs so that she can communicate that to her husband, to have courage to communicate that to her husband so that he can have humility and be able to respond to to what those needs are. I think you're right. Um, In Sirach, there's a verse that says the opposite of every gift is a curse. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see that immediately when we see the curses that are particular given to man and to woman, right? For man is that you shall work, you shall earn by the sweat of your brow, right? So we see even then a focus on provision as a physical thing and not as a thing of the entire person for the entire person. Um, And the curse that is given to woman is that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall lord it over you. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, St. John Paul II says this in Love of Responsibility. He says a woman will also often conform herself to what she perceives the desire of a a man to be. And in that sense, she loses herself. Say that again. Say that again. She will often conform herself to what she thinks the desires of a man are. So rather than her being honest in terms of herself and what she really needs, yes. in the context of a relationship, she'll try to fit or guess what he needs or convey her needs in a way to match, but that's not exactly what she needs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. Because she has this insatiable, he calls it an insatiable desire for the union because she desires communion, which is a good 
which is a true good, right? But because she's almost possessed by this desire, she doesn't take the time to stop and to reflect on who she is, who she's called to be, and what her needs are in this relationship. So then, as you as you put it, to be able to communicate those needs. Okay, so you spoke about Jesus just a few seconds ago. Mm-hmm. I know you and I have spoken about sometimes the challenge, even when again back to men's ministries or mm-hmm. our understanding of masculinity, is that a little. I don't know if a pet peeve is too strong of a word, but a, a little just kind of. Yeah. Asterisk that you put out there is that often groups will focus on St. Joseph as a model of masculinity. And you say, guys, you have Jesus Christ as the model of masculinity. Yes. I mean, like St. Joseph's great. We love St. Joseph. Please, anybody listening, don't think we don't like you. We love St. Joseph, right? But in terms of the real model of masculinity, let's not stop at St. Joseph with all the great traits he has, but let's go straight to, to the Savior himself. Exactly, right? I mean, if we're... We want to understand what it means not just to be created as male and female. We want to understand what it means to be redeemed as male and female, right? And we really see that, especially for men, and looking at Christ. Here we have redeemed masculinity staring us in the face, right? Man who provides her identity as bride to the church and to humanity as a whole. And because he's perfect, (laughs) right, that should be really good for you guys because you don't have to worry, like, did he make a mistake here? Did he make a mistake here? Right? In not just seeing him, but in being conformed to him through the sacraments, through baptism, through that grace, men then are given the capacity to be able to relate with women with the same grace that Christ himself did. That's beautiful. The challenge for, for men also is that we are still on the receptive end when it comes to to the Lord. And this is, yes. at least my experience sometimes has been a challenge when we talk about the bride of Christ. Yes, mm-hmm. in a particular way, the all the women in the church are the bride. But with the analogy that St. Paul uses in Ephesians is that the church itself is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. So there's a place where all of us are on the receptive end of of Christ. So we still, even men, are not off the hook then in terms of having to understand what our needs are and being able to be vulnerable to bring Jesus, the provider, into that within us so that we can then be that image and be that provider to the women in our lives. Exactly. So one of the things that St. John Paul II speaks about, Muliris Dignitatum, which is his letter on the dignity and vocation of women, is the fact that woman kind of stands as an icon of the bride, right? In a certain sense, she teaches all of humanity how to receive the love of God. And this is part of the gift that she gives to men in their relationships, right? Because she's learning how to receive or to suffer love. She helps him to do so. Um because that providing always has to be for the other. There's this this play that Carol Votier wrote, so mm-hmm. St. John Paul II, when um, before he was Pope, called the radiation of fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And the focus in this play is really that, whereas a woman almost has this instant connection with her child, right? She knows the moment that man reveals to her that she is bride, that she is also mother, right? For a man, it's not the same, right? He knows that he's the bridegroom, but he doesn't necessarily or immediately feel himself or see himself as father. And so in the play, there's this beautiful dialogue between uh, every man, symbolized by Adam, um, and the mother and the daughter who calls her father not to leave her orphan, but to allow 
herself to be born in him, right? Men can sometimes biologically produce children and then step back, right? And the mother as bride and mother reminds him to step forward into his fatherhood and to make the choice that this is my child and I will thus accept what it means to be a father. Okay. Let's bring this down a little bit further then. Okay. All right. What, what, are, what is, everything you just said was beautiful. Um, very abstract. How do we, Sorry. No, 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 it's great because we, we, we always have to hold intention, the, the abstract, which is, which is real. It's not, I'm not negating any of that because it absolutely is beautiful and real. We need to understand that. But where are the points of connection then? Translate what you just said, put it in, give, give us an example as to what that looks like in a, in a, in a practical application okay. here today between families or even just couples, whether they're married or just men and women that are dating. What does that look like for, for men and women today? Okay, so maybe maybe two. And the first one um, is an exhortation by, by Pope Francis. And what Pope Francis really does is he encourages parents, especially fathers, to waste time with their children. And I really think there's a play on words here between um, the money that we feel that we're losing because we're not working and are being able to waste and be gratuitous to be free with our children. I certainly think that's one aspect of it, right? Not always feeling the clock ticking, the work behind us, but being able to be there as father um, for one's children. When I was in, in Rome, there was a family I had worked with as an au pair for a while. Um, they had a two-year-old son and I came back a couple years later and I was speaking with the father and they had had another son in the meantime and he said, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, when, um, when Marcello was little, he said by two years old, and I was there so I can attest this, he was speaking three languages and he immediately was reading and analyzing things and just had this incredible intellectual capacity. Whereas his younger brother, right, was all about sports. And he wasn't so quick with, with reading because he was busy doing all the masculine, typical, stereotypically masculine things. The Marcello just took a couple more years to do. And what I saw there in the father, he had this wonder and awe of the gifts of each one of his sons, the particular gifts that they had given to them. And so I really think fathers are called in the image of, of God the Father who recognizes that he has made us fearfully and wonderfully to be in wonder and awe at their children. So their children are able to see in their eyes, right, the gifts that God has given to each one of them. It sounds like there's a particular role for men then through this provision, that the provision is exactly the identity, that the man is the one who, who has the capacity. I mean, women do too, certainly, again, it's always a struggle with this, but in a particular way, it's the man then who is called to, to be able to see the identity of their children uniquely and be able to bless that. And that's a, is that what you're saying? Yes, I, I, I think that, right, again, in that image of God the Father, who we would say is is creator and who is provident, Pope Leo Thirteenth makes an allusion to this in Rerum Navarum, the Father is called in a particular way, we would say to provide for his children. So bring this all together, provision then out is at the base level, providing security, providing a home, providing uh, the resources that one needs to, for life to thrive. But that's not the end. And I think that's maybe where an older um, understanding of masculinity, that was it. That was just the man worked, he brought home the bacon, right? He checked the boxes and then he can, once he did that, he can come home, put his feet on the table and, and be done with it. And that was it. And that model 
didn't last, rightfully so, because it because that isn't enough. It isn't it isn't just that you're providing at that level, but you're having to provide more at more so at the level of identity. So then if your if your aim as a man is to provide blessing and identity and safety to your child, some of the means upon which you do that is through work. Yes. Is through through having enough money to 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 meet the needs, right? But that becomes almost sacramental to to the to the the deeper reality, which is that you're you're trying to bestow goodness and blessing onto your children. Yes. And so then in the word into the play on the words here, for many men who do struggle with waste, wasting time, wasting finances, all that. The way Pope Francis said it is that when we do waste time, quote unquote, again here, we are spending time with our children. That is an opportunity for us to be able to bless them, to bless them and to help them know and see their goodness. Yes, definitely. And I and I have to say, I think, like you noted, that there was an older understanding of what masculinity was. I think because it was restricted, this is what so many men found frustrating, right? I believe that I'm called to do something more than this. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we continue to examine in our own lives and to look at that, I think um, even in, in the tradition, St. Zelie and Louis Martin, for example, are an amazing example of what that means to be a married, holy couple um, in which he learns how to provide even through her. There's this story in which one of their daughters really needed to go on retreat. And I believe it was Marie. And he said, no, 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 I, I don't want to spend the time or the money. And, and she doesn't need to go. And Zalie waited. She waited and she came back to him and she said, I know this is what you want for your daughter. You want her to be a saint. And he said, you're right. That's what I want. We'll send her on retreat. Oh, and I think as we begin to delve into these, we better recognize ourselves and the call that we have to be in the image of God as male and female. Amen. So I'm thinking right now, the listeners on the other end here, what would be a word of encouragement that you would offer to men listening to this podcast? Ooh, that's a big one. Um, I think that perhaps one of the one of the best things that we can always do is really to go back to the word of God. Right, because the, the divine author speaks to us through those texts. And so I would encourage you to take passages from sacred scripture. For example, today the reading was Jesus's encounter with St. Peter, where he asks him, do you love me? Just sit down in those texts where Jesus, you know, as that the order of redemption interacts with these men and to pray with those and to ask God, really, where is he calling you to provide more? right? Where do you need greater grace in your life? And really to ask for that grace and then to be able and willing to sit down with, whether it's your girlfriend, your wife, if you have a sister, you know, a a trusted female friend and say, where is it that I need to grow in my masculinity? How can I better be that image of God that I'm being called to be? And so not let the, the ladies feel left out. <laughs> what would be a, a word of encouragement that you would offer the female listeners of this show? I'm, I'm going to say something very similar. So um, when I was young, my sister and I, my sister is also a theologian, right? Um, we would always hear the story of Mary and Martha. And we, I would all, I always got the Mary. She always got the Martha. And I think a lot of women kind of feel censured by that story because they feel if they're busy, they're busy being Martha, mm-hmm. right? And that there's something wrong with that. Um, and in that story, what we really see is that one is called first to hear the word of God and then to do, right? right. Because Martha is busy every time that she serves, 
She only gets called out the one time. And Mary is constantly at the feet of Jesus, so much that the commentators say, if she's at the feet of Jesus, she must be Mary. So I think to pray with passages like that, right, to recognize the specific gifts that God has given you, and then to say, how am I helping the children, the men in my lives, to realize that the providing that they're doing needs to be for the other? Am I doing it in such a way that it's selfish and I'm trying to glorify myself? as St. Edelstein said, can happen when we don't pray? Or am I truly concerned about them becoming the men, the men and women in regard to children that they're called to be? Am I doing it in a way that's loving? Mm-hmm. Or am I doing it in a way that's nagging, right? And asking God once more to help form you in that image of the bride that helps humanity to live out its vocation and its calling with Christ. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Miller, for joining me this afternoon and being part of this podcast. I pray for the listeners that I pray that you may receive the words that were offered here in this conversation, that they may be a blessing to you, that they may be an encouragement to wherever this show finds you. Thank you for inviting us into your home, into your lives, for allowing us to to waste time together here and for listening to our, our conversation. And I pray that it may be a blessing to you. And so we thank you. So thank you, Jennifer, Dr. Miller. I appreciate the time. I hope you have a great, great afternoon, a great weekend. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the listeners as well. You see, I told you she brings a much needed perspective to this conversation. That was great. A wonderful episode. So thanks for listening to it. And please don't forget to head over to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you get your great podcast from and hit the subscribe button. Uh, we don't want you to miss future episodes that we got coming out. So thank you so much. God bless and have a great day.